I was having a cup of coffee this week with a with a guy, and we were discussing the uh, current problems facing America and the need for strong leadership to confront those problems. You know, leadership is critical to the successful operation of any organization. Without leadership, the people perish. Sports teams need good leadership. The military needs good leadership. Various governmental organizations need good leadership. The business world needs leadership. The home needs leadership. The lack of leadership produces devastating results for any organization. It probably could be described those devastating results nowhere better than the Scripture does as it talks about Israel's dark days in the book of Judges. And it says that when there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. You read the book of Judges and you get a vivid illustration of what the lack of leadership produces. But in order for leadership to be effective, those who are being led must willingly follow. It kind of goes both ways. You have to have good leadership, but you have to have a, a willingness to follow leadership. All people, all people reside under certain God-ordained authority structures. It's part of the created order. The scriptures speak of that. For Christians, it's almost an axiomatic truth. We at least verbally accept such things, don't we? You go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5 and into chapter 6, and some of those authority structures are laid out for us. It talks about children within the home have parents. It's an authority structure for them. It speaks of the relationship between husbands and wives and the authority structure there. So within the home, there are God-ordained authority structures. Within the business world, there are God-ordained authority structures. Again, Ephesians 6 speaks of such things, masters and slaves. Beyond that, within society at large, there are God-ordained authority structures. Paul, in the book of Romans, chapter 13, verse 1, speaks of the requirement for Christians to live in submission to the magistrate, to the ruling governmental authorities, knowing at the time the Apostle Paul wrote that, that Nero sat on the throne in Rome. There is a God-ordained authority structure, and we are to submit to it. It is fundamental to Christian living. Submission is really a a fruit of genuine humility and is a produced by the Spirit. It is a result of Spirit-filled living. Again, Ephesians 5, verses 18 and following. So what we're talking about when we speak about submission and leadership and authority structures are the very fabrics, really, of human society. Those things laid out by God. And how a person responds to those authority structures really reveals a lot about what's going on inside their heart. God has put them there. And so when we respond to them in a, in a godly, submissive way, we are really responding to God. When we reject them, when we chafe against them, when we push back against the various authority structures that God has put in our lives, what we're doing is chafing and pushing back against the rule of God. This is fundamental stuff for Christians. People who are unsubmissive, people who are stubborn, people who show themselves unteachable are demonstrating not a spirit-filled life, but really a manifestation, manifestation of the old ways, the life of the unredeemed. 
Open your Bibles up to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to look at one verse this morning, Hebrews 13 and verse 17. That's page 1207 in those pew Bibles, if that's what you're using this morning. I'm not sure the last time you heard a sermon drawn from Hebrews 13, 17, maybe you never have. But this morning, I want to explore this verse with you and its implications, really, for the church. For the last eight or nine weeks, we have been, we have been working through the leadership of the church. What is it all about? Who are the leaders of the church? What are the requirements for leadership? And we are now moving beyond the character requirements of the leaders themselves, and we're beginning to look at what are their responsibilities and how does the congregation to interact with them. So Hebrews 13, 17 is a key and significant verse. Now the background for this epistle to the Hebrews, just very quickly to put it in context for you, written, we believe, to Jewish Christians, I'm persuaded, that are living in Palestine. It is just sometime before A.D. 70 and the destruction of the temple because they are being drawn back into the temple rituals. There is a strong pull in their lives to not to just not to abandon Jesus Christ and return to Judaism, but to try to hold on to Jesus Christ and pull part of Judaism back in with them. The reason according to this epistle that they want to do this is they want to escape the persecution that has come upon them. Persecution primarily from their Jewish countrymen, maybe even family members. So by living distinctly for Jesus Christ and setting aside the old order, they have, they have brought down on themselves the wrath of their friends, their family, and their neighbors, and, and they're trying to lighten the load a little. And so they want Christ, but they, they don't want to live so sharply for Him, so distinctly from Him. They don't want to stick out in their society so much. So this unknown author writes this epistle to them to exhort and encourage them to live for Jesus Christ and Him alone. Now, as we look at Hebrews, the end of it, the last chapter here, 13 and verse 17, there are three facts regarding deference to leadership that we must learn from this verse in order to understand and appreciate the authority of the elders. This is a sermon about deference to leadership. And it is significant in this epistle to the Hebrews because it is their leaders who are trying to call them back to their distinctive lifestyle with Christ. So the first fact that I want to look at with you is that deference is a command. Deference to leadership is a command. It is not a suggestion. It is not a suggestion. It is a command. First Peter, again, just reminding you, First Peter chapter 5 and verse 3 says that the leadership of the church, the oversight of the church has been allocated or allotted to the elders. The church belongs to Jesus Christ, purchased with His own blood, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. This church doesn't belong to me, it does not belong to the elders, it does not belong to you, and it does not belong to us. This church belongs to Jesus Christ. But Jesus has delegated certain oversight of His local church to elders. That's what Peter says, First Peter 5. But ultimately, each and every one of us are fully and finally accountable to Christ Himself. But it is within the authority structure that Jesus has set up. Day-to-day pastoral oversight, Jesus has delegated to a group of men, a group of godly men called elders. And it's as these men lead the church in submission to Jesus Christ that we as a body are called to be in submission to them. That's how it works. Christ over the church and the elders in submission to Christ and the congregation in submission to the elders, thus ultimately in submission to Christ themselves. Listen to what the writer says here. Verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them. 
for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. Obey your leaders and submit to them. He begins with a command. It's a two-part command here. These are imperative verbs. These are command type of verbs. Obey and submit, he says. Not a suggestion. It is a command. You are to obey and you are to submit. Now, what does it mean? Let's just kind of peel this open a little bit. What what does it mean when he says obey? Well, the verb that he uses here, it denotes the idea of assenting to another person's direction or directive. Giving assent to another person's direction. Listen to would be another way to translate it or even follow. Listen to or follow would be equally good translations of the verb translated here, obey. Listen to your leaders. Obey your leaders. Follow your leaders is the idea. Beyond that, he says, submit to them. The idea implicit in this is is the idea of yielding to them, yielding your contrary opinions in favor of theirs. Yielding your contrary opinion in favor of theirs. Accept their authority over you. Give way. Defer. These would all be part of what's being communicated here by the verbs obey and submit to your leaders. It's really a very strong passage. Very forceful passage here. These two ber- verbs are combined and, and it, what it communicates to us is that the, that the congregation is to be responsive to its leadership. Responsive to its leadership. They are to yield to the authority of their leaders. They are to yield contrary opinion to that of their leaders. When there is a difference of opinion... They are to yield that difference to those in leadership over them. All part of these imperative verbs, obey and submit. Now, before I go too far here, let me add a caveat very quickly. The idea here of obedience and submission is not an unqualified and absolute command. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that it's not in the sense that that the the church must submit all of life's decisions to the elders. Okay, That would be to go beyond what is being communicated here in the context of this epistle to the Hebrews. There are some churches, and typically they are house churches, that overreach in this area and and members are, are unable to make any life decisions without going before the elders to have it ratified. That would be to overreach what's being communicated here. So it's not the sense that nobody can decide anything unless the elders opine on it. That's not the point. The idea is that there is a submission here, and we'll develop it a little further, with regard to your spiritual life. With regard to your spiritual life. But having given that caveat, it's also important to say that the opinion of the elders is not inconsequential to your life either. It's not inconsequential. Although the elders do not have authority over your life in the sense of every decision you make, their opinion is not inconsequential. It is not inconsequential. It is not irrelevant to you. You see, it's not just a matter of opinions. You know, I've got my opinion, you've got your opinion, everybody's opinion is equally valid. That's not what he's communicating here. There is, a, there is a positive element here that individual believer is to submit their preferences to the collective wisdom and preferences of the leadership of the church. Particularly or, or only as those leaders ground their preference and decisions in the Scriptures themselves, which is the only way to truly know Christ, the head of the church. So let me ask you a question here as we work this through. Why? Why must believers obey and submit to their leadership? Why must believers yield their contrary preferences and opinions to the leadership of the church? Why? 
Well, the answer is, is because God has appointed them to the task of spiritual oversight and care. That the elders of the church are not a human creation. They are indeed a, a divine organization. It is God's way of doing things. What about benefits? I mean, what, what benefit comes to us as believers by deferring to those in leadership over us? For most of us, we can think of possible detriments that would come to us because we live in such an anti-authoritarian world. But what about benefits? What comes to us when we yield ourselves to the leadership of the church? Well, the answer is spiritual protection. Spiritual protection and nourishment are the benefits that flow to us. They aid us in our battle against sin. As we are seeking to live godly for Christ Jesus, the role of the elders is significant and important to our process of sanctification. That sanctification is not just a personal relationship going on with Christ, just me and Jesus and my Bible, and that's all I need for sanctification. It is actually a community, a group process as well, and the elders play a very key role in that group process. Look again at the text, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls. Do you see it? For they keep watch over your souls. The spiritual oversight of the people of God in this dispensation has been delegated to the elders of the local congregation. They keep watch over your soul. Suke in the Greek translated here soul. The NIV translates it with the, with the idea of the pronoun you and picking up the whole person. They keep watch over you. Suke is also translated here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, speaking more of the inward spiritual dimension. But even the inward spiritual dimension of our life plays itself out in the physical realm. So whether you like the, the translation, they keep watch over you, or like, you like the translation, they keep watch over your souls, the results are ultimately the same. They keep watch over the people of God. The elders are to keep watch over the people of God. They are the appointed guardians of the welfare of the people of God. Now when the reality of that sinks in, it ought to encourage us. It ought to encourage us that somebody's looking out for me. I'm not on my own in this endeavor. It's, it's not just me and Christ and somehow I've got to, I'll get through. There are others looking out for me. It ought to be an encouragement to us. But you know, when it says here that they keep watch over your souls, the, the idea of keeping watch, that necessarily implies that there is danger involved. That there is danger out there. If there were no danger, real or perceived, then there would be no need for a watchman. The very fact that there is a required watching capacity going on, the need for a watchman, tells us necessarily there is real danger out there in the world. Real danger. Titus chapter 1 verse 10 speaks of false teachers. There are false teachers in the world that would seek to deceive the people of God and draw them away from the truth. Thus, they need elders to watch over their souls. There are various spiritual pitfalls and snares. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 talks about someone being caught in a trespass. They're out there. There are tripwires that can ensnare us and cause us to stumble. And we need someone watching out for us. Someone who is experienced as a trail guide who can walk along and can point them out to us. Careful where you step. There's a, there's a tripwire right there. Some of us are spiritually weak as believers. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 talks about spiritually weak believers. Those that are spiritually weak need someone to come along and, and help them. Someone to watch over them. 
new believers in Jesus Christ, new babes born in Christ, right? They need someone to watch over them. In the physical realm, we wouldn't leave a newborn baby home alone to fend for itself. Well, in the spiritual realm, we we dare not leave a newborn babe in Christ alone to fend for themselves. They need watch care. They need somebody to take care of them. You know, this whole book of Hebrews is really an example of the watchful care of the shepherd. This whole book is written to be a, 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 a way to help the people of God avoid the, the snare and the pitfall that they, are, that they are presently in danger of, and that is to, is to falling back towards Judaism and trying to pull some of that old ritual back into their Christian life to avoid the persecution. And so they need to be warned. They need to be watched over. And in the writer here, that's exactly what he's doing. This is a living example. The watchful role of the shepherd. Back to verse 17 here, the, the pronoun they is in the Greek in an emphatic position. It's in the emphatic position. It, what, it, what it emphasizes here is that there is a personal obligation on the part of the leadership, the part of the elders, to watch over the people of the congregation. They and they only, or they and no other, have responsibility to watch over your soul. It is the responsibility of the elders to watch over the people of God. There are plenty of good TV and radio preachers. There are plenty of good books to read. And and those things are helpful and beneficial to the Christian life. But they are not charged by God. The radio preacher is not charged by God with the spiritual oversight of a local congregation. Nor is the writer of some significant book on theology or Christian living, they are not charged by God with the spiritual oversight of the congregation. Only the elders have that responsibility. Many useful tools, but it is the elders, those among you, 1 Peter 5, that have that oversight and responsibility. They keep watch over your soul. When it talks about keeping watch here, by the way, etymologically, it it, it conveys the idea of losing sleep. Keeping watch conveys the idea of losing sleep. If we were to trace the the word backwards, etymologically, we would see that concept is built into the word. Keeping watch equals losing sleep. The ideas are, are together. Those who have served as elders understand how true that is. How the work of, of the elder can cause sometimes a restlessness at night, even a sleeplessness, as the problems of the people of God lie on your heart. Sometimes sleep doesn't come very easily, or you wake up in the middle of the night thinking about someone or something. Keeping watch over your soul. Second fact is that deference has controls. Deference has controls. In your parentheses, it says congregational protection. There are are protections for the congregation because the authority that's been delegated here is pretty strong, right? Obey and submit. Those are strong terms. So there is some protection, though, because the elders are men with feet of clay. They are sons of Adam. And so, so Christ has built into the leadership structure of His church certain protections for the flock. There are three of them. Three of them here for us. And we'll just kind of go through them quickly. The first protection is plurality. There is a plurality of elders. That is the first protection for the flock of God. All right? They keep watch over your souls. Obey your leaders, plural, not singular, not singular. The the oversight of the flock of God is not delegated by Christ to one man. It is not a one-man responsibility. The authority that is significant here in, in, in these verbs, obey and submit, is not given to any one man. And it doesn't matter how godly that man might be. 
Because power corrupts. Power has an inherently corrosive and corrupting influence upon us. And so it is delegated to a plurality of men, to a group of men. The protection that God, Christ, gives to His church is that the, the authority has been spread among a group of godly men. Plurality. Secondly, accountability. Accountability. The elders are accountable for the work that they do. They are not a law unto themselves. They are indeed accountable. And beloved, take a look at who they're accountable to. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Those who will give an account. The implication, the strong implication of this passage is that the account that they will give is to God Himself, to Christ, the owner of the church. They are stewards. 1 Peter 5, again, those allocated or allotted to their charge. The sheep do not belong to the elders, they belong to Christ. And so when the owner of the flock comes, there will be an accounting that has to be given. Those who will give an account. Turn back here to the left and let me me show you how the Apostle Paul talks about that. 1 Corinthians 3. First Corinthians three, verse ten, and following. Paul is addressing the rebellious church at Corinth. Verse ten, he says, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. That's because he's an apostle. The foundation of the church is upon the apostles, right? Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. And another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon the foundation laid by the apostle. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it. Because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. What's he talking about? He's talking about the the building of the church, the growth of the church upon the apostles' foundation by the future generations of leaders. And what he is seeing here is that the the work of the elders and the building of the church of Jesus Christ will be evaluated by God with fire. And to the extent that they do good work, gold, silver, precious stone, there will be a reward to be received. To the extent they do poor work, it will all be consumed in the fires of judgment, yet they themselves will escape. They will not lose their salvation in the process. Back to Hebrews 13. So there is an accountability built in, and this is an important protection for the congregation. The elders know they're going to give an account someday. That Jesus Christ is going to come and He's going to call His elders before Him and He's going to evaluate their work. And to the extent it's been done well, there'll be rewards handed out. To the extent it is not, there'll be judgment. This is not just, by the way, a New Testament concept. It is firmly rooted in the Old Testament. I won't ask you to turn there, but just listen as I read from Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. This is the Old Testament image of the watchman. Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Yet, if you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered yourself. 
the watchman on the wall, is required to be, to be observant, to be alert, to be warning the people. Paul understood this responsibility of a watchman. And so therefore, as he spoke to the elders of the church at Ephesus, when he gathered them to himself, Acts 20, at Miletus, and he gave them sort of last instructions, right? He said to them, Acts chapter 20, verses 26 and 27, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Do you see how it ties into the Old Testament concept of the watchman? I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The Apostle Paul says, like the watchman on the wall of Ezekiel 3, when when a word came from God, I I relate it to the people. I am innocent of the blood of all men. It's a sober reality for those in leadership of the church that with their authority comes responsibility. And with the responsibility comes the searching evaluation of God, the one who searches the thoughts and intents of the heart, right? The one who can see beyond the surface, the one that knows your motives, gentlemen, that knows what really lies inside of you. He searches your hearts. Luke chapter 12, verse 48. From everyone who has been given much shall much be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. There is a level of responsibility and accountability that go together for those in leadership. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur what? A stricter judgment. A stricter judgment. Leaders answer to God for the quality of their care. Accountability. And when people in leadership understand that, it brings a sense of gravity to what they do. Third, protection for the congregation. For that, we have to just flip back in this chapter to verse 7. It is the character of the men in leadership. There is a plurality, there is an accountability, and there is the basic character of those in leadership. Not everyone qualifies. Verse 7, he says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. He's calling them to remember their, their former elders, those that were in leadership over them. It seems to imply here that they're no longer there. Perhaps they have died themselves under the persecution. We don't know. But he's telling them to to think carefully, to remember, to consider in meticulous detail those that were in leadership over you and imitate them. Imitate their lives. We know he's talking here about elders. Because again, look what he says. Those who led you and spoke the word of God to you. Leadership and teaching, these are, the, these are the mandatory duties of the elders, right? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 3, verse 2. Leadership and teaching. Those who led you, those who taught you, remember their character, he says. They were men of high character. High character. That's why the requirements, the character requirements of 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7 are not negotiable. Right? We, we hammered away at that. that. It is not like the California driver's test where you can get so many wrong and still pass. It's not, you know, you just got to get 80%. It's, it's you got to have it all. Not in perfection. But there must be a maturity that rolls through your life as outlined here in 1 Timothy 3. It is not a negotiable thing. The leadership of the church must be men of character. And when they are men of character, then the congregation is protected from the significant authority that has been invested in its leadership. Many congregations are scared to death to give biblical authority to their leaders. And the reason they're scared to death frequently is because of the character, the low character of the leaders that they have over them. 
Beloved, the secret to that, the, the way to resolve that is not to unbiblically limit their authority. It is to biblically apply the standards of character before a man is elevated into a position of leadership. There were congregational protections. Third, deference produces consequences. Verse 17 again, chapter 13. Deference produces consequences, both for the elders and for the congregation. For the elders, it's, it's kind of one of two ways, and I, probably the same, I would say, for the congregation. It's joy or grief. Deference produces either joy or grief. Let them do this with joy, he says, and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Every shepherd knows the joy of, of seeing people walking in the Spirit, growing in their likeness to Jesus Christ, hungry for the Word of God, desirous of ministry. Every shepherd knows the joy that's involved when, when, when their people are like that. This past week I got a thank you note from, from someone that I had not seen in a long time. It was a a couple that I had done some marital counseling with. When they walked into my office, they were on the verge of divorce. The papers were drawn up. They were ready to do it. And we labored together in the Scriptures. And, and I was never really sure, to be honest with you, how much was getting through. And after a while, they sort of disappeared. I didn't hear from them anymore. And all of a sudden, this week, there's a note sitting on my desk. A thank you note. And they thanked me in it for the time with them. And they, and they said, we're doing a lot better. And, and by the way, we renewed our wedding vows on May 21st. The shepherd knows the joy of people who walk in obedience to Christ. By the way, the shepherd has a right to expect that. The shepherd has a right to expect that the process of shepherding is a joyful process and not a painful process. The Apostle Paul writes something very interesting. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. Just a little clause tucked away in there. And he's writing to this church and he says, You are those who ought to make me rejoice, he says. You ought to make me rejoice. It is your duty to make your shepherds rejoice. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. Not with grief. Just as every shepherd knows the joy of, of seeing somebody walking in faith, right? They also know the pain of those who disregard the Word. They know the pain of seeing a brother or a sister deliberately walk away from Christ and plunge themselves into spiritual ruin. They know the grief and the sorrow of those that ignore spiritual counsel, of those that insist on banging their head against the wall. You know, the complaining of the nation of Israel almost broke Moses. It nearly broke the man. Numbers chapter 11, verses 10 to 15, read it. He wanted to die, he said. Lord, just kill me and get it over with. I can't do it any longer. These people... I'm going to break me. Apostle Paul himself, he knew the, the pain, the grief, the sorrow of shepherding those that are, that are stubborn and unwilling. We'll go, uh, let me show it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, or chapter 2. See if we can do it quickly here. There's some biographical information that is just slotted into 2 Corinthians. By the way, 2 Corinthians, I don't know if you know this or not, there are actually four Corinthian letters and two of them are lost to us. There is, there is the first letter to the Corinthians, which we don't know only by reference. Okay? Then there is what we call 1 Corinthians, which is really the second correspondence Paul had with the church. And then there is what's called the painful letter. There is a third correspondence with them, which is lost to history. And then there is what we call 2 Corinthians, which is really the fourth letter that he wrote to this recalcitrant, to this recalcitrant church. So here in chapter 12 of verse 2, 
He's referring back to he had sent the, the sorrowful letter to them because they had, they had rejected his authority and they had openly mocked him and humiliated him when he, had, when he had gone there to help them in their spiritual problems. And so he, he left. He was almost driven out of town and he, and he wrote them this painful letter and he, and he sent it in, in, uh, with Titus back to them. And so verse 12, When I had come to Troas for the gospel of Christ... And when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. What's he saying? He was there in Troas. He says, a open door. By the way, in the scriptures, whenever it mentions an open door, it's talking about an evangelistic opportunity, an opportunity to share Christ that is significant. And the Apostle Paul says that there was a significant opportunity there for me at Troas, but I had no rest. I was so disrought of the church at Corinth and waiting to hear back from Titus as to what would be their response to my letter that I couldn't even take advantage of the evangelism opportunities. I just had to move on. I had to move on. Go over to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. You can see how God resolved his heart. You pick it up in verse 5. For even when we, were into, we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, for we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. He is torn up over the church. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Titus finally arrived, and he brought news to the Apostle Paul that the church had repented of their sin, and that they would now accept Paul's shepherding ministry over them, and his spirits were lifted. Even the great Apostle Paul knew the grief that could be brought by those whom he was responsible to shepherd, and they refused his shepherding. Go back to Hebrews 13. But there's only one way that a man can hold up under that kind of pressure. There's only one way a shepherd holds up under the pressure of a, of a church that, that rejects his shepherding ministry. And that's to be firmly and unflinchingly rooted in the love of Jesus Christ. Do you remember John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, to the extent that you love me, you will then be able to carry out the shepherding ministry of the church. It is not rooted in your love for people, gentlemen. It is rooted in your love for Christ. Because people will hurt you. People will disappoint you. People will let you down. But as you love Jesus Christ, you will pour your heart out for His people. Beloved, it's the same with evangelism. It is not your love of the lost that motivates your evangelism. It is your love of Jesus Christ that motivates you to speak. Here the apostle in Hebrews 13, verse 17 He exhorts the congregation to enable the shepherds to fulfill their role with joy and not with grief. The way a congregation responds can make a huge difference to the ministry of the elder, how how enjoyable the ministry really is. But you know what, beloved? It doesn't matter whether the church responds in a way that makes you joyful or the church responds in a way that makes you sorrowful. Your responsibilities of shepherding remain the same. Recalcitrant members can make the job difficult, but they do not relieve the obligations. It can make you groan, but it doesn't get you off the hook. And finally, the apostle says that if if the church makes the elders groan, they will groan themselves even more. For this would be unprofitable to you. Do you see it? The end of verse 17. For this will be unprofitable to you. To cut yourself off from the God-ordained shepherding ministry of the elders is to plunge yourself into spiritual ruin. It is to run from God. It is to run from God and to run to the world. When you reject that which God has provided for your spiritual growth, you are turning your back on God and you are running from God. Bitterness. Bitterness. Stunted spiritual growth will be 
what your life is characterized by. Every true believer will not forfeit heaven by their rebellion. The atonement of Jesus Christ, His blood has, has extinguished their guilt and their sin. They will still enjoy heaven, but there is a lot of misery on this earth that they can generate for themselves along the way. This would be unprofitable for you. There's an interesting rhetorical device that he's using here. It's called a litotes, and it's a literary device. And it, what it does is it substitutes a, a mild negative statement in, in the place of a strong affirmative statement. And the idea is it's supposed to cause the reader to ponder, to stop, to think, and to fill in the fuller meaning themselves. An example would be when we would say something's not bad, but what we really mean is that it's very good. That was not bad. We mean it was very good. That's a litotase. Well, that's what he's using here. When he, he says it would be unprofitable for you, what he's really saying is that it will be a disaster for you. It will not just be a mild inconvenience. If you reject the ministry of the elders, it will be a disaster. Frequently, those who have been brought under the discipline of the church reject the shepherd's rod. They are called upon to repent of their sin. Matthew 18 is followed in accordance with how it's been laid out in the Scriptures, yet rather than repent of their sin, they cut themselves off from the church. They harden their hearts and they turn their backs on spiritual counsel and they plunge their lives into spiritual and moral freefall. Those who reject the discipline, it is disastrous. But what about if we disagree with the elders? What if we have a legitimate disagreement with the elders? What do we do? How is that handled? I mean, it's possible, certainly more than possible, it's likely that the elders will make decisions that some of us won't like. We don't agree with them. How do we handle that? Well, there is a the way to be handled it is to go to the elders in a respectful way and to ask them to open the Scriptures and show you why the decision was made. Let them draw it from the Scriptures. It is either an explicit command or it is a necessary implication or it is their collective preference drawn from the Scriptures. Make them open the Word of God with you and show you. But what happens if after they've done that you still... Don't agree. What happens? What happens if your conscience is, is bound in that area and you just don't you just can't agree, you just disagree? What do you do? You handle the disagreement in a respectful way. You handle it in a submissive and respectful way. You, you respect their position of leadership and authority over you. You don't chafe against it. You don't, you don't speak of it in the parking lot to others. You don't try to coalesce people around you for your particular opinion. You hold your opinion, but you hold it in a way that is respectful. But ultimately, when the decision is finally made, the elders make it. You know, we live in a time when submission to authority is a dirty word. You even mention the word authority and some people will accuse you of hate speech. I mean, the seeds that were harvested in the 1960s are continuing to produce fruit in this culture. We live in a day and age where people do not want anyone to be in authority over them. They don't like it. They don't like it. What a tremendous opportunity it represents for us as believers to live counterculturally. Right? When all the world is raging against God, for Christians to live with an attitude of humbleness, submission to the God ordained authority structures within us, within that have been placed over us, right? In our homes, in our places of business. As we respond to our government, and yes, even in the church. 
as we begin to live this out, it is a powerful testimony to a transformed life because an unregenerate person cannot submit themselves. It is only when Christ has worked in us to change us that we're able to live and flourish within the authority structures that God has ordained to guide and protect, direct our lives. We need to pray for humility of heart. We need to pray. Let's do so. Our Father, this is a difficult message to give and no doubt a difficult message to receive. Many of us can think of examples where the elders of the church, be it this church or others, have acted in ungodly ways, have sinned, have acted in ways that were not in the best interests of the congregation, who have drawn power and authority to themselves in a way that was not rightfully theirs and consequently have hurt the people of God. And so, our Father, a a natural way to respond is to try to limit or reject that authority. But, But, Lord, that's not your way to respond. Your way for us is to continue to submit ourselves, to continue to humble our hearts, not to a man, but ultimately to you. And by faith to believe that you are working even through imperfect people. Our Father, I ask you to humble our hearts. I ask you to help us to live in a way that is distinctly Christian, both in our homes, in our places of employment, and with regard to how we interface with our governing authorities and even here within the church. Help us to live with humility and submission so that it is so different than the world around us that we would have a platform to speak Christ when they inquire as to what is the difference. We thank you, our Father, for the submissive spirit of this congregation. We thank you, our Father, for your work of grace in their lives. We pray your continued protection and watch care over us. That you would keep the evil one from coming among us and disrupting the fellowship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.